with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this evening for your son. We thank you for the opportunity we have to close out a Lord's Day in worship of you, learning from your word, in service to you as we prepare to go into our workaday world to meet those, Father, that uh, perhaps do not know you as Savior and that we have opportunity, of course, to share our faith with them. <clears throat> we pray, Lord, that you would guide us this evening as we look at your word, as we continue to look at this most important declaration of yourself in the Old Testament that's carried even into the New Testament. We pray likewise that you would be with our children this evening, our, our students as they're studying the Word of God, and then, uh, Father, that you would abide and be with the ones that have been mentioned this evening that were brought to our attention this morning. We lift them up to you. Intervene on their behalf. Play the great physician according to your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've been looking at the phrase in Exodus 3. of Moses to lead the Hebrew children from Egypt uh, to the promised land. Now, I want to finish reading the chapter tonight, although I doubt I finished the chapter, because we'll pick up with verse 14. What we see here, of course, is that the Lord God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Does you, uh, uh, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. We've been talking about that. We'll continue to look at some of this declaration this evening. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial in all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers... The God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will heed your voice, and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now, please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst, and after that he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells uh, near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so shall you plunder the Egyptians. So all this declaration that we see here in the latter part of chapter 3 and it will carry over into chapter 4 as well. All of this hinges around the declaration that the Lord has, has made uh, to uh, Moses, in, uh, beginning with the burning bush and then, of course, carrying through to his self-declaration in verse 14. So we closed out with this last uh, Sunday evening, uh, Sunday evening two, two weeks ago now, um, 
and we'll continue to look at, at some of these uh, some of these verses and how it plays out uh, over the course of this evening. If you look at the second bullet there, it says, let, let us falling under the criticism of Albert Einstein that Charles Misner, who was a man that wrote a biography about Einstein, and he wrote this about Einstein. He said, Einstein basically said, or Misner is writing about Einstein, I do see the design of the universe as essentially a religious question. That is, one should have some kind of respect and awe for the whole business. It's very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religion. Although he strikes me as basically a very religious man. He must have looked at what the preacher said about God and felt that they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined, and they were just not talking about the real thing. So this was uh, a quote I ran across uh, from a, one of the commentaries that I've uh, been using for the book of uh, Exodus. One of the things that, uh, that a pastor or a preacher, or that Moses, and we're going to see this as Moses, Moses gained strength from this. Now he, he begins to argue with God until God finally says, if you don't be quiet, I'm going to kill you. And then that kind of wakes him up. So, and then he, his entire character changes from what we see here in chapter 3. So God is preparing Moses to deliver the Hebrew children in a way where he is an instrument of God. Notice what God says here. The king of Egypt is not going to let you go. Not even by a mighty hand, and so I'm going to devise these uh, wonderful works, or these wonders, he says, that I will perform in his midst, in your midst as well. These are the plagues, of course. And after that, he's going to let you go. So this centers around the declaration that God has spoken to Moses, the I am declaration that's seen there in verses in verse 14 and verse uh, 15. Next slide, if you would. <clears throat> so we talked a little bit about this. In fact, we've talked uh, a great deal about this um, in focusing on this particular uh, verse. What Moses learns, now remember, we read this sometimes, we read, and especially this is true in the Old Testament. We read it as a narrative. Well, what has this got to do with me? Well, it has everything to do with you and I. Because the self-declaration that God is making to Moses, he's also making to you and I. It's a real-time, th- see, no time with God. We learned this a couple of weeks ago. We've talked about this uh, over the ministry here for numbers of years. And so three, 4,000 years ago when this declaration was made to Moses, we think, oh, that's a long time. That doesn't have anything to do with me. It has everything to do with, with me. So what Moses learned And what we are to learn is that God has the power of being in himself. He didn't create himself. He is the one that is the am. Augustine said, God is the first and the greatest existence. 
Now, he's first because we need a first. We need an alpha. But he's not first in the sense of time because there's no time with God. And again, you think, oh, that doesn't make sense. Of course it doesn't make sense from a logical standpoint, but then God, what we're looking at here is the rational, we trying to pour our rationality into the revelation of God, and we can't do that. We're not God. Augustine said God is the first and the greatest existence, who is utterly unchangeable, and who could say most perfectly, I am who I am. He who is has sent me to you. Now, the he and the is are the same. That applies to Moses. It applies to the Hebrew children. It applies to you and I. God has not changed in the thousands of years that he made this declaration to Moses. He's not changed his law. He's not changed his morals. He's not changed his character. And thank we need to be thankful for that. So he introduces this special name to Moses, this I am, okay? And God reveals this as a revelation. Moses, neither Moses nor you and I would have happened upon this declaration. We couldn't conjure it up because we don't understand it. We don't think that way. So God reveals his name as a revelation to Moses that will be remembered for all generations. So he reveals this name to Moses and this revelation, God's revelation of himself is always an act of grace. It is the outpouring of God being the great giver of all that you and I enjoy. God did not have to reveal it. God is never under any compulsion from his creation or his creatures to do anything. And so he does this as an act of grace to Moses. And in this, he speaks of his timelessness. He speaks of his simplicity. And from the simplicity of God, we get the understanding of his aseity or the fact that he has no needs. Now, this is some theology, but this is not going to hurt you. This will help you understand why we've spent such a great deal of time on these particular verses. So he's timeless. He is simple. And we'll broach that here in just a moment. And he has no needs. You and I are confined by time. And even if we had a time machine, we would still be confined by time. We would either go back in time or we would go forward in time. But we're still confined by time. God is simple. God has no corporeal parts. You can't pinch him. You can't feel him. You can't touch him. Except in the person of Jesus Christ. And has no needs. So completely different from Moses and you and I. Next slide. <clears throat> so let's talk a bit about these things that we've listed here. His timelessness. God chooses to enter into time in the incarnation. 
He did not have to do this. Again, he didn't need to become incarnate. He did that because he's a God of grace. He became incarnate to save us. Without the incarnation, as far as we know about Scripture, there would be no salvation. God knows his creatures experience. We experience the passage of time. He knows that. Jesus was, while he was on earth, he was confined in time, no longer. Creation, the 33 or so years on earth, confined, and then future, again. And these are not elements we can't talk about past, present, or future with God because he lives basically in the eternal present. He stands outside of time. Okay, that's the transcendence of God. We've mentioned that a number of times. Each, each individual moment of time, past, present, and future, is present time to him. Timelessness means present, always. How does God know what's going to happen in the future? Because it's present to him. He's omniscient, and it's present to him. He doesn't look ahead for anything. It's present to him. That's the revelation that he's teaching Moses here. And Moses learns this because at the end of the book of Exodus, he asks to see God's face, and God says, Moses, you can't see my face. You know that. I appeared to you in a burning bush many, many years ago, but you can't see my face. So Moses carries this with him during the Exodus. All right, to experience the time's passage is to experience change. And in the book of Malachi, among many other passages, God does not change. Told Malachi, that is the closed out the Old Testament. I am the Lord and I change not. So when we're looking for, if we're looking for a new God that is acceptable, that accepts all of our nuances today, all of our, uh, our dabbling in sin, we can forget it. That's not the God of Scripture. That's not the God that is revealing himself to Moses. And he will remind Moses of that toward the end of the book of Exodus. I am the God of peace and of grace and of mercy, extending my love and mercy to thousands of generations, but also holding everyone accountable. That's the God we serve. This is the God that's I am. Augustine again said, the immutable and ineffable nature of God does not admit what was or what will be, but only what is. For he truly is and cannot be changed. Now, this was, Augustine was uh, one of the first uh, post-apostolic great theologians and a tremendous, tremendous mind. Verses 15 and 16 that we've read this evening, he now begins to say, I am. He doesn't say I was. Abraham's dead, Isaac's dead, Jacob's dead. I was their God. Nope. I am the God of Abraham. And so as he, as, from, from this point through most of the Old Testament into the New Testament, Jesus himself will begin to use this phrase, and we'll see that in John's gospel, probably not tonight, but maybe next Sunday night. I'm the God of Abraham. 
I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. Not I was or I shall be. It's good news for Moses and for Flat Creek. For the same I am that Moses dealt with, I'm the God of Moses, I'm the God of Ernie Carey. He's the same faithful, just, merciful, gracious, and true, not, uh, true God now as he was with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. Not a different God. He is the same. And because he is the same, if he were different, we couldn't place our trust in him. He would change. But because he doesn't change, because he is timeless, because he is faithful, just, and merciful, we can trust him. Next slide. Turn with me to Job 41. <clears throat> So, the great book of Job, where these are the last two or three chapters of Job, and so Job has listened to three of his dear friends and a young upstart, a whippersnapper, if you, if you please, shows up, and he's listened to these four individuals for most of the book of Job. Job's answered and gone back and forth, and... <clears throat> Then, in chapter 40, actually chapter 38, the Lord begins for about three or four chapters to answer the questions of Job and, and to a certain extent answer the questions of his buddies too. And the Lord answered Job, chapter 38, verse 1, out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? You don't know who I am. You think you know. And billions of people across the globe think they know about God. Oh, God is love. God would never judge me. And yada, yada, yada. Whatever, whatever they want to fill in the blank. That's what people say. But God can reply to them the same way he replies to Job. Who darkens counsel? In other words, your counsel is that of a mirror where the light is dim. By words without knowledge. Prepare yourself like a man, I will question you, and you will answer me. And then he starts through this litany of things. But in chapter 41, he's, he is describing some of his creation to Job. <coughs> and uh, verse 10 says, No one who is so fierce that he would dare stir him up. He's talking about Leviathan, which is a, a large sea creature. We're not sure could be, we're not sure who it is, what it is, but he describes that. And then verse 11, he says, who has preceded me that I should pay him? Were you created before I created you? Do you know the I am? Everything under heaven is mine. And again, that, that includes time. 
everything under heaven is mine. Now, we talked about the aseity, and it just comes from the Latin, two, two little words in uh, Latin, asi, and it means from himself. So God proceeds from himself. He is independent of all causes, whether from within, which is the Trinity, or from without, his creation. God has no needs. He is secure in and of himself. I was reading something. I was, there was a there was a uh, ad on watching football this afternoon, an ad that caused me to go and do a search. Um, basically, about Jesus. Let me see if I can find it here. Yeah, the ad talks about Jesus, and uh, it said go to hegetsus.com. I don't know if you saw that or not. So I went to hegetsus.com, and it's basically what you would think it would be. The Lord is there for us, and he gets us. Nowhere does this say we get him. So you have to be careful of how these things are presented. Because God has no needs, and that includes you. And I talks about Jesus being lonely. And Jesus was lonely while he was on earth. He was, he was loneliest on the cross when his father left him. But he didn't have a need for another human. He had need for his father. Acts 17, 28, let's turn there. Acts 17, 28, Paul's preaching on the Areopagus, on the Mars Hill, and he uses this description, tremendous description, um, verse 26 and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they may grope for him and find him though he's not far from each of us for in him we live and move and have our being as also some of your own poets have said for we are also his offspring God does not derive his worth from his creation. If he never created an angel or the living creatures or you and I, his worth would be bound up in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he is near to those that call on him, and that's a quote from Psalm 145 and verse 18. So that's what uh, the Lord does, what Paul was speaking of, here. Turn back to Psalm 50. God is near to us. He is a friend, as the Proverbs say, that sticks closer than a brother. 
But in chapter 50, for Psalm 50, tremendous psalm, by the way, and there uh, the psalmist is writing. He says in verse 10, For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine, and all of its fullness. Obviously, God doesn't get hungry. Now, Jesus did. We know that because the Scripture says he hungered. But God doesn't. And the Lord Jesus now doesn't. So, confined to a human body, he experienced what you and I have experienced. He is near to us as the giver. He is never the getter. And so, coupled within this name is the understanding, and we talk about a saiety, we talk about simplicity and so forth, that God has no parts. In John 4, Jesus speaking to the woman at the well, told her, you worship God in this mountain, Mount Gerizim. The Jews worship God on Mount Zion. But he said God is a spirit. He's not confined to being worshipped to Gerizim or to Zion. He's spirit. And so no parts, no physical components. When the Bible speaks of the hands of God or the fingers of God or the arms of God or, or the eyes of God or the heart of God, it is, that's, you've heard me say this, anthropomorphic, it is just placing who God is in a human form so that we might understand that. But he doesn't have fingers or hands or eyes or heart. He is spirit. And as such as a spirit being, he can move in and among us and through us in ways that we don't understand and probably never will understand. And so he has no corporeal parts. It just simply means no structure that we would recognize him. Remember now he appeared to Moses in a burning bush. Moses isn't seeing God. He's seeing the burning bush. He's hearing God, but he's not seeing God. He is seeing the burning bush. Later at the end of Exodus, he's going to ask to see God, and God's going to say, you can't see me, mother. No one can see me and live. Thank the Lord for the incarnation. Are we going to stop there this evening? Where are we here? What slide is that? So number on that slide, bro? Uh, 33. 33, all right. And we will pick up with this next Sunday night. Any comments or questions? Why is this important? Because what Moses learns here on the backside of the desert is solidified in his gut to lead a million to two million people out of Egypt to the promised land. That's why it's important. What we learn here is that this same God is our God and shall always be our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are this evening. We thank you that you are the I Am. We thank you that you are, there's no past, no future. You live in the eternal present. Again, something we do not understand. But we thank you that you revealed yourself to Moses in grace and you reveal, you reveal yourself to us in grace. I pray, fathers, that we take what we've learned, we 
hide these words in our hearts that we may not sin against you, that we may be in awe of who you are, and that we may take um, the witness that we have experienced in your forgiveness, your salvation to a lost and dying world. Bless, I pray, every family individual that is here this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.